0: All right. Well, this morning is a is a Christmas message. is a special message. It's not really a two part series with Kelly because we didn't really coordinate at that level, um, except that my message today um, will be a, a message of expectation. Anticipation from Old Testament prophecy, and uh, Kelly's I know is going to be a message that's about fulfillment, about the actual Christmas story, about God answering those promises by sending uh, Christ. So uh, I wanted to give a message from the Old Testament. I've preached Christmas sermons on I think pretty much all the Old Testament passages that are likely to be found on a Christmas card, such as. Um, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, a child is born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his peace uh, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Or Isaiah 7:14, you might get a Christmas card with this Old Testament passage. Therefore, the Lord himself... We'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Or uh, you might get this, uh, Micah 5.2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah from you. One will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of uh, eternity. And so all passages like these are um, what the Old Testament saints were anticipating as they were uh, saying the same thing that we were singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive um, Israel. But the uh, passage that we're going to look at this morning is earlier than all of these prophecies, earlier by about um, 700 years. So this is one of the earliest Christmas prophecies. I doubt you'll find it on a uh, Christmas card. I could be wrong about that. But it comes from Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17. And let me read it now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. That's the prophecy. I want to get to it. But before I do, I'll I'll kind of situate it in uh, the story of what's going on and where this prophecy uh, comes from. Um, This, uh, These chapters, numbers 22, 23, and 24, tell the story about the children of Israel in the 40th and final year of their wilderness wanderings. And so it was Moses' final year um, as well. And at this point, they had reached their last campsite before entering the promised land. And so they were at the plains of Moab, opposite to Jericho, right on the other side of uh, the Jordan River. And the king of Moab, his name was Balak, was afraid at their presence, Um, They were camping on his territory, at least on the edge of it, although they were just passing through. It was not the promised land they were about to enter into the promised land. And so Balak, out of fear, decided to hire Balaam, a famous seer, to come and curse Israel. So we got Balak, he's the king of Moab and he's hiring Balaam and he's uh, supposedly a seer and uh, he's hiring to curse Israel. So um, it says, Numbers 22 and verse four, Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor at Pathor, which is near the river, the Euphrates river about 400 miles away in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying, behold, the people came out of Egypt, behold, they cover the surfaces of the land and they are living opposite to me. Now, therefore, please come and curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. That's why I called him. That's why I went to such trouble to get him from uh, a long ways away. This man, will be able to curse uh, Israel. So Balak, king of Moab, sent messengers for Balaam, a long way, with a fee in their hand. Balaam received them, heard their request, and said, well, let me find out. God is going to speak to me at night, and uh, he'll tell me, and I'll tell you in the morning. Um, It says, um, chapter 22, verse 12, God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse this people, for they are blessed. And so that's what he told them. He told them no. And he sent them away. They went home um, and told uh, Balak that the answer for Balaam was no. So Balak tried a second time. He sent messengers, more distinguished. He went after uh with more money this time. And Balaam said the same thing. Well, let me sleep on it. And God is going to tell me at night. God came to Balaam at night, the second time now, and said to him, if the men have come to you to call you, rise up and go with them, but only... The word which I speak to you shall you do. So he told him to go, but only speak the word. But it says in the passage after that, God was angry that he was going, he told him the first time what he had wanted him to do. And so as um, Balaam was making his journey, the angel of the Lord took a stand against him as the adversary in the way. And so we have this kind of amazing and memorable scene witnessed by two servants of Balaam so that they're, they're uh, watching him while he's uh, doing this where the donkey that Balaam is riding on sees the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword in his hand and Balaam doesn't see it. So uh, the donkey went to great lengths to avoid uh, this angel with the sword until he was completely boxed in at a place where uh, he was uh, had walls on either side of him. And so the donkey stopped and laid down under Balaam. Well, Balaam, completely lost it, began to beat the donkey and the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. You might have wanted to be there for this day to hear what this might've uh, sounded like. Uh, but the donkey said to Balaam, what have I done that you're beating me? And have I ever treated you this way before? And you can see kind of the wheels turning in um, Balaam's head as he's responding to this talking donkey. And he says, no, you've never treated me this way before. It's at this point that the Lord opened Balaam's eyes to see the angel of the Lord with the sword in front of him. First thing, the angel of the Lord says, why are you beating this donkey? And then if the donkey hadn't stopped, I would have killed you and let her live. Um, and then uh, told Balaam uh, to go, but to only speak the word that he uh, uh, said to, uh, to Balaam. So Balaam goes, meets Balak, and they're going to bring this project about. They're going to go to work. So Balak, the king, takes Balaam up to a mountain where he can see a portion of the people of Israel. The king makes seven altars, sacrifices seven bulls and seven rams. And um, Balaam goes a short distance away to uh, get a message from the Lord. Comes back. It's a blessing for Israel and not a curse. And so Balak says, what are you doing? I've hired you to uh, curse this people and you've blessed them. Balaam says, well, that's what I've told you all along. I'm only going to be able to say what the Lord says uh, to me. So Balak says, well, let me take you to a different place. You'll see the people from a different uh, perspective and, and maybe you can curse them from there. So they go to a new site, seven more altars, seven more bulls, seven more uh, rams. Uh, Balaam goes away a short distance, comes back. It's a second blessing. It's more specific than uh, the first Um, Balak is angry. He says, don't say anything at all. If if you're going to uh, bless them, Balaam again says, this is what I told you. I'm only going to be able to say what the Lord uh, says to me. So Balak says, well, let me take you to one more place. It's the highest place. You'll actually be able to see the entire people of Israel from this place. Um, and perhaps God will see fit to, uh, curse them. So uh, at this point, the third time, it says that Balaam looked down, he saw all the people, and it says that at uh, this time he didn't do his um incantations. He didn't do his normal routine, whatever it was that he did when he was trying to get a message uh, from God. He just waited. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he gave a third blessing, and he reported it back to the king, more specific than the second. Well, at this point, Balak completely lost his patience. It says he struck his palms together and he says, I hired you to curse this people. And now you've blessed them three times. Get out of my sight, flee uh, away from me. And uh, Balaam himself says, no, I've got one more message to give. I'm going to give it to you one last time. I'm not done. This one's for free. This one is not uh, a hire. He says, let me tell you what this people will do to your people in days to come. And he gave one more prophecy his most far-reaching, his clearest prophecy of all, and that's our paragraph where we have, and that's our passage where we have uh, this prophecy about the star, about seeing one far off, uh, seeing a star and seeing a scepter rising out of Israel and what uh, he will do. A star, that's what he that's what he says he uh, sees as he tells um, Balak this final time. And that's basically the end of the story. After that, they just part and go their uh, separate ways. But uh, the star that he speaks of the star that he sees a star coming forth from uh, Jacob is a well-known symbol for a king uh in his uh prophecy but also of course has some bearing on the star that signaled the birth of Christ the christmas star that the wise men saw and were also uh uh following uh as well to draw them to uh Christ well, I think it is fair, so that's the that's the background to this uh, passage and kind of situates it for you and it, it's probably familiar to most of you. I think it's fair to say in our time, we take both blessings and curses less seriously than they did in Bible times. And so if someone blesses us, they say, well, that's a nice thought. Uh, but not really more than that. And if someone curses us, we'd say, well, that's a regrettable thing. But it's, it's really not uh, more than that. They took both blessings and curses more seriously in Bible times. And that's easy to see. Um, think of Esau when he found out that his father had blessed his older brother with a blessing that was uh, intended for him. When he heard that, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me. Even me also, my father. And uh, in Hebrews, it says uh, about that. Although Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance. though he sought for the blessing with tears. He really desired that blessing. He didn't just think it was a kind of a nice thought (laughs) that was, uh, but he he really uh, desired it even unto tears. The children of Israel desired to be present for the high priest to speak a blessing over them. According to Numbers 6, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace, so they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. And it literally is, uh, they will put my name on the sons of Israel by speaking this blessing uh, over them. And they, the Israelites uh, desired to hear and, and to have that blessing spoken over them. We live in a world in which the ground is cursed. It's the only world we know. Uh, that's the world we we're born into, and the ground has a curse because of man, or specifically because of man's sin. In the new heavens and the new earth, some things will be the same. A lot of things will be different, but one thing that's different about it, there will no longer be any curse in the new heavens, and the new earth says that in Revelation chapter 22 and uh, verse uh, 3. Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 2 says this, like a sparrow when it's flitting, like a swallow when it's flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. So have you ever gone into a field on a summer night, a field of high grass, and there's uh, swallows that are that are uh, swooping uh, in the grass or eating bugs um, at night, and they don't rest. They don't they don't uh, light on and, and rest for a while. You don't see them doing that. You just see them in constant motion. And so the proverb says, that's what a curse without a cause is. It doesn't uh, alight. A curse without a cause does not alight, but is like a, a swallow in its uh, flitting and uh, flying. And so we read that proverb and we tend to say, yes, a, a curse without a cause doesn't alight because a curse doesn't really mean anything anyway. So really the point of this proverb is don't be superstitious about uh, curses. But the proverb is not about curses in general. It doesn't say a curse does not alight or is like a, a, a sparrow and it's flitting. It says a curse without a cause does not alight. That's what you shouldn't be afraid of is a curse without a cause. And it seems to me to indicate the reverse or the corollary that a curse with good cause sticks. A curse with a good cause alights. It comes true. It's like a bird that not only stops, but builds a nest and then hatches uh, a brood. A curse with a good cause, a just curse, can seal you into a destiny that destroys you. That's what a curse uh, with a cause uh, means. Balak, King Balak, considered Balaam's involvement in this project to curse since he was a famous seer to be a good cause for a curse that would alight and would come true for uh, Israel. And so that's what he was hoping for. That's why he went to all of this um, trouble. On the other hand, we, I think, especially the way we tend to view blessings and curses, um, tend to think of the idea of cursing someone a lot less seriously. And so we think of the story of Balak and Balaam as kind of the comic relief of numbers, which can tend to be a little bit dry um, anyway. Um, uh, we tend uh, to say this was really a pointless exercise. There was no actual threat. The children of Israel, who didn't even know about this at the time, this was happening on a hilltop, uh, high above them were in no actual danger at this point, and that Balak and Balaam were sort of buffoons for even having this idea in the first place and for seeking to carry it out. Well, I think there's some truth in that. There's a little bit of laughter at Balaam's expense, a little bit of ridicule of his presumption and self-importance, his blindness. Um, and in his blindness, we see our own um, in this. But actually, God himself t- took this episode quite seriously. He doesn't uh, consider this episode a joke. Um, God considers this episode quite seriously. In fact, God considers this a defining moment for expressing his character and for expressing his disposition towards his people. How do I know that? Well, about, I think about 10 more times in scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Balaam is brought up again. This episode is brought up again and again and pointed back to as an important moment in the revelation of God. Um, It's brought up again in the Pentateuch. It's brought up in the books of history in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in the epistles and in the book of Revelation, so kind of from start to finish, in Scripture. In fact, think about it this way: I heard this and I was kind of surprised by it. There's more in the Bible about Balaam than there is about Mary. So it's an important it's an important uh, aspect of Scripture. And let me just read you some of what um, the Bible says about uh, Balaam. So Deuteronomy chapter 23. And uh, verse uh, four, because the Moabites hired against you, Balaam, the son of Baor from Pathor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord, your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord, your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord, your God loves you. Hmm. So the story of, of uh, the, the Lord turning uh, Balaam's curse into a blessing is a, is a measure of the Lord's love. It's the kind of thing he does for people that He loves. Um, and so it's not just dismissed as a kind of a stupid thing that people did. That doesn't mean a lot. It's, it's a measure of, uh, the Lord's uh, love for his people. That's the way it's uh, put in uh, Deuteronomy or Joshua 24 and verse uh, nine and 10. Joshua speaking, but he's quoting the Lord. Um, then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you. I delivered you from his hand. So the Lord uh, looks back at this uh, moment as a deliverance, as actually a key deliverance that he, he looks back on and uh, reminds uh, the people of. Or Nehemiah chapter uh, 13 and verse two, it says that the Moabites hired Balaam against them to curse them, Israel. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. It's hundreds of years later. Nehemiah is still remembering about the time that the Lord turned a curse into, um, a blessing. Or Micah, chapter 6, verse uh, 5, My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Hmm. So you, you might, if you want to know the righteous acts of the Lord, then remember, don't forget what Balak did when he hired, uh, uh Balaam, the son of Baor, and what happened at that moment. And those, that's less than half of what uh, the scripture says in continuing to talk about Balaam and uh, this moment. So God takes this actually very seriously, not because of what Balak thought, because he thought that Balaam was such an important person that this would certainly be uh, a curse that would land. But perhaps because this was a curse with a cause. There was a cause for Israel to be cursed they deserved it they had given god plenty of occasion to be deserving of a curse in fact um, at this point god had already considered himself on more than one occasion wiping out the people of israel moses prayed and the lord uh, relented moses reminded the lord of his uh, promises to uh, the lord and so it seems to be that this is the time when the lord didn't turn a curse without a cause into a blessing but turned a curse with a cause turned a curse that that had a reason to be uttered, maybe not the one that Balak uh, thought, but had a good reason to be uttered. And the Lord turned it into a blessing because he loved the people of Israel, because he had set his love uh, upon them. Well, maybe a little more light cast on why this is significant or significant to uh, Balak and uh, Balaam comes from a kind of astonishing archeological discovery that was happening in 1967, about 20 miles away from this mountaintop, um, and I say astonishing because most archaeological discoveries are pretty boring, but this one is not, um, is a plaster wall that celebrates the story of a famous seer who's involved in the workings of the gods through night visions. And the seer's name is Balaam, the son of Beor, is the same person. Um, And it was found, it supposedly dates to about 500 years after this event. And so I think it kind of corroborates outside of the Bible that Balaam was a well-known and celebrated figure in the ancient Near East, uh, even long after his death. So think of Balaam, not as a comic figure to the people that knew him, uh, but as kind of a larger than life figure and the one that was well-known um, at the time and probably feared at the time as well. That might give a little insight as well into the Magi following the star from uh, the East. And Magi was a group of wise men that were counselors to kings, interpreters of dreams, interpreters of signs. They had some continuity when kingdoms rose and fall. So, for example, the Magi that were um, counseling in Babylon also uh, lived on to be counselors in Persia. Daniel... It says, and scripture was made the chief of the Magi that were counseling in uh, Babylon. This is much later uh, than, than this. And so they had uh, the Magi from the east perhaps had some um, familiarity with Daniel. There's also a tradition early in church history that all of the Magi descended from or were successors of Balaam. And so perhaps passed down uh, some of the prophecies of Balaam like this star. So that makes sense when you've got wise men showing up in Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because we've seen his star from uh, the east and uh, perhaps they were armed and equipped with this uh, prophecy of Balaam about uh, a star coming out of Israel and a scepter uh, and a king being born. Well, Balaam was a bad guy. Uh, Balaam was a false prophet, as the New Testament makes clear. In fact, Balaam died at the hands of the sword of Israel. That's how he met his end. He was actually, after this, involved in another scheme to hurt Israel, and he paid for it with his life. And yet, Balaam knew God on some level. God actually spoke to uh, Balaam, and so he was familiar with him. And Balaam, at least on this occasion, was true to God's word, even though he was hired and pressured to speak differently from God's word. And so on this occasion, at least Balaam was as faithful to speak the word of God and the word of God only as the most fervent old Testament prophets that were, that were eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ. God makes even the wrath of man to, uh, to praise him. Well, let me pick up, let me pick up with the fourth time that, uh, uh Balaam spoke, and this is the time when he's been dismissed by Balaam. Balaam's done with him. Uh, he's already done what he didn't want three times. And so this is the fourth time that Balaam speak, and it's kind of a tell-off of uh, Balaam after he's said to get out of my sight. And Balaam says, well, I'm not done. I've got one more uh, thing to say. I've come all the way here. Almost died on the way, and I'm going to have my say uh, about it. And he he tells them what uh, this people will do to his people in the time to come. So let me pick up Numbers 24, verse uh, 12. Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I'm going to my people. Come and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And he took up his discourse. This is an extra one that he's gonna give to him and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor and the oracle of the man whose eyes opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the most high, who sees the vision of the almighty falling down and yet having his eyes uncovered. There's a great deal about seeing and not seeing in this uh, story. Um, Balaam's reputation was as a seer. He can see things that normal men uh, could not. But of course, on the way, his donkey could see things that he was not able to see. But at this point, Balaam says, no, I'm Balaam, the son of Beor, and I'm the one whose eyes have been opened. God has uh, opened my eyes so uh, that I can actually see. And I can see the vision of the Almighty falling down as if like in a trance. Perhaps that's how he uh, used to receive whatever prophecies he supposedly received and yet having his eyes uncovered. And so now he can actually see when he was uh, blind uh, before. And so here he's on the highest mountain. He's on the high point of the three places that they've uh, 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 assembled to try to carry out this scheme to curse Israel. And it's as if on this mountain, he can not only see a great distance in space is from the east, he looks into the land of Israel and at the people of Israel, poised to enter uh, the land. But he can also see a great distance in time as well. And so he makes his most far-reaching, most specific uh, prophecy, and it's like the highest resolution. You know, it, it really comes into focus here, what he's able to see. And it's about the rise. It's not just about the success of Israel, which is what his other three um, were about, but it's about the rise and the conquest of a king. A king. And so this is what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. What exactly did Balaam see? What did he see? As he, as he sees with his eyes uh, uncovered. I see him. I see him but not now I behold him, but not near. So he's seeing a far distance off in time and he sees him, the star that comes forth from Jacob, a scepter rising from Israel. In other words, a King who arises. What exactly did he see? Did he see a newborn lying in a manger with his parents gathered around him? And a couple of shepherds uh, gathered uh, around him uh, as well, come to worship uh, him. Did he see, a star overhead. He says, I see a star coming forth. It's the person. I think it also speaks of the star that announced uh, his birth. Did he see it? He says, he, he says he's seeing him. Did he see scenes from the second coming of Christ, which is actually what the rest of all that he says in this prophecy is about a great battle of this king. When he comes again, he's coming in glory and he's coming as a warrior and he's coming uh, to fight against uh, Israel's enemies and that's what he speaks of here. Is that what he saw when he saw this king? When he says, I see him, but not now. I see, uh, I behold him, but not near. Or perhaps he saw all of this together. But uh, this is what he saw and this is what he speaks of and this is what he tells of in his uh, prophecy. And what does, he, what does he say this king is going to do? A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of uh, Sheth um, and so it mentions Moab first Israel's neighbor let me just just finish this out um, Edom It's not only Moab, but others, uh, enemies of Israel as well that are neighbors. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies who will also be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly, one from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. He looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain will be consumed. How long will Asher keep you captive? He took up his discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? But ships shall come from the coast of Kittim. They shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. And so they also will come to destruction. Then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place. And Balak also went his way. Well, I don't want to get lost in details, but the general sense of this is clear. The nations surrounding Israel who attack them, including Moab, Edom, Amalek, the Kenites, Assyria, will be crushed by this uh king and he gives the prophecy in terms of almost kind of a timeline gives some of the the surrounding nations and then assyria the and then uh finishes with the ships of kittim which uh are also mentioned in daniel daniel doesn't mention rome but he mentions these ships of kittim which, which is cyprus or crete it's the way of looking at the western uh, europe basically and it turns out to be rome which is the one in power when Christ was born. And actually what we're living through now is in some way prophetically a continuation of uh, Rome. And he says it too will come to destruction, but this king is going to prevail. And he's going to do so by turning the attack of Israel's enemies uh, against them. And so Christ reverses the attack, not just of Moab, but of all Israel's enemies. And when Christ returns, he's going to do just that on behalf of his people, uh, Israel. Well, Balaam sees this aspect of the coming king's reign because that's what's in question. That's what he's involved in. He's involved in Moab seeking to wipe out um, Israel. And so he sees a vision of Christ's reign, the star, the scepter that comes at, as how it pertains to this project that he is uh, involved in. Moab uh, seeking to destroy Israel, happy to join with anyone else around in the area uh, to do this. And so um the point of this vision is uh, Balaam saying, no, let me tell you what this people will do to your people in the days to come and it will do this because of this uh, king. So an attack by neighbors is in view. That's what Balaam sees at the end and talks about, but that's really only the tip of the iceberg for this king and his reign because what's true of this aspect of the king's reign is true of every part of his reign and that is he brings about the very reverse of the evil that's intended against his people. So it's true of Israel's enemies, it's true of the reign of this king, not just externally in that way, but in a deeper way, in every way uh, as well. The king that we celebrate at Christmas time, the king that Balaam saw a thousand and more years in advance, it is the nature of his rule to turn a curse into a blessing. For his people. In fact, it's the nature of his rule to turn even a curse with good cause, a curse that's an actual threat, into a blessing for his people. You can ask Isaac Watts. He's the great hymn writer who wrote Joy to the World. And he understood this aspect of the king's reign. He talked about the king whom the earth would receive. Um, Joy to the World is his interpretation of Psalm 98. You can read Psalm 98 later and you, you'll hear echoes of uh, the hymn that you know so well. Uh, but this is what he says in it. He says, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's interesting. He doesn't say, um, He comes to neutralize the curse like a, like a swallow that never alights but just stays in the air. Or He comes to turn back the curse or comes to turn back most of it. No, no, no. He comes to make His blessings flow abundantly far as the curse is found. He leaves uh, nothing out so that it says in uh, the words of that psalm, let the sea roar and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy because of the coming of this king. Christ doesn't just neutralize curses. He turns them into their opposite. And that's what the reign of this king means that we celebrate at Christmas time. And that's what this prophecy is about so the child that we celebrate at Christmas time turns a curse into a blessing. In fact, turns a curse with a cause that's, that seems to be destined to alight and to come true into a blessing instead of blessing that flows. He turned blindness into sight. He turned lameness, not just into walking, but into leaping. He turns guilt into forgiveness. He turns defeat into victory. He turns bondage into freedom turns sorrow into joy, turns anger into love. He turns death into resurrection. So if your eyes are opened to see this king, to see him for who he is, to see him uh, as your king, what message of, what is the message of Balaam's star? What does it mean for you this Christmas? For whatever you're facing, whatever whatever it is, whatever trial, whatever temptation, uh, whatever curse, whatever curse, it seems to have good cause, uh, to come, come true. Or what does it mean for Trinity Bible Church as we seek to grow and help others to grow, as we seek to shine a light amidst a, a wicked and perverse generation? Two words for what it means. Fear not, fear not, if we have this kind of a king, fear not. And let me take you, um, this will take you to Kelly's message for, uh, to, for next week. But fear not. Why? For behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which will be for all people, that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who can turn a curse into a blessing, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Savior who is Christ the Lord, who was born for us the star, the scepter who comes from Israel and turns all of Israel's enemies the reverse of what they intended. And we thank you that this is not just uh, one aspect of his reign, but it's what he does for us, that he takes all of what Satan brings against us, what our flesh uh, brings against us, what the world brings against us, and uh, not only um, neutralizes it, but he turns it into its opposite. He makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found and so this is the savior that we need a savior like this this is the only savior we could have and yet uh, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in him for who he is and for what he has done we pray in his name amen